Danny Tecito, it's good to have you on the Better Rivals podcast for this special Thanksgiving edition of uh, the Better Rivals podcast. How many times can I say Better Rivals podcast in one intro? Danny, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. I uh, just want to know what you're drinking. Uh, I am actually am drinking some rosé, believe it or not. Uh, my okay. wife opened a bottle last night uh, and did not finish it because she's not a savage. Uh, so uh, I'm just, you know, finishing off the bottle tonight so it doesn't go bad because we leave for California on Wednesday. Oh, so it's a tribute to California? That's Yes, it's a tribute to California. I'm drinking. Or is it, a, is it a tribute to the rosé and gold of the uh, 49er? You know what? Let's go with the latter because that is a much better, <laughs> much better version of, of why it is that I'm drinking rosé when it's not, you know, hot outside slash the summer. Uh, but Danny Tecito, <laughs> you were formerly a football outsider. You actually wrote the 49ers chapter in the, in the football almanac not too long ago, which is how I actually first came across your writing. Since then, you moved on to football outsider or uh, football guys uh, and you cover daily fantasy. Um, and perhaps more importantly, you gave me the advice of starting Ricky Seals Jones last week, uh, a week where he put up like one point, two points or something like that. Uh, so I blame you for all the good and all the bad. I feel like uh, nobody should ever start Ricky Ricky Seals Jones or Dion Lewis ever again. Uh, I think that's accurate because you know that I also started Dion Lewis, and that <laughs> end well for me. So, Danny, you you've been writing about football for a while now, and and you're on the podcast for two reasons: one, because you're a 49ers fan. So I thought it'd be fun to have you, a 49ers fan who covers football and and, and thinks and, and writes a lot about football, on to just. Talk a little bit about the Niners and give a little bit different perspective. But also because we met for the very first time not too long ago when you kind of rolled through Austin for uh, a barbecue festival. Uh, and, and we had a couple beers, watched the Niners beat up on the Raiders and, and had a good time. So I figured, hey, why the hell not record it and, uh, and put out a podcast? I think uh, I was the good luck charm that week. Yeah, uh, basically. I think that's, that's the first 49ers game, I believe, since like week one that I've watched with another human being. <laughs> all right so so i think i think somebody's trying to tell me like to be more social and like or maybe just to like go to austin all the time i I think both of those would be would be good so what what i wanted to do with this show is you know it's a midweek it's the bye week it's thanksgiving week and and i thought you know rather than kind of talking about you know next week's opponent or whatever i thought it would be interesting to just talk a little bit about things that we're thankful for given the season given the week that we're in uh, because, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about things we like and dislike about the team. And I think that there are, even though the Niners have right now the first overall pick in the draft, and even though they've only won two games, I still think that they are process-wise in a positive place, ACLs notwithstanding. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about things that we were thankful for, have some conversations, and see where, where the convo takes us. Uh, I think you and I both would agree that the number one thing that every 49ers fan should be thankful for is that we actually have a good head coach right now, an offensive-minded head coach, just like it used to be back in the Harbaugh days. And so to me, even though the 49ers aren't getting the results that they did under Harbaugh, I think that uh, we have a, a head coach that's just as good as Harbaugh, and that's where you start in the NFL. You start with the head coach. Everything falls from there. The, head, the, the NFL is a top-down league. Teams that have bad head coaches, they're perennially bad. Teams that have good head coaches, they're perennially good. Now, whether or not you know whether a head coach is going to be good or bad 
in advance is something to talk about uh, probably in another podcast or more uh, statistics-based podcast. But I am completely thankful that Kyle Shanahan is our head coach. I, I hope I totally agree with you, and we've covered a lot about Kyle Shanahan and his decision making over the course of this season. But but I think the the part that I get most excited about when it comes to Kyle Shanahan is that the 49ers are structuring their team the way that modern NFL teams should be structured. You've got an offensive minded head coach, you've got a quarterback who yes is recovering from an ACL injury, but you've got a quarterback, uh, and, and then you kind of fill in the rest around the quarterback because the quarterback is the most important position in football and if you can figure out the relationship between the head coach and the quarterback you are set in a much better place and if you're looking for that thing when you look across the league and and you look at coaches that are turning their teams around and are kind of on the positive upswing you've got obviously McVay in Los Angeles he's got Jared Goff you've got Nagy in Chicago and he's got Trubisky you've got DeFilippo in Indianapolis he's got Andrew Luck you've got this combination of an offensive-minded head coach paired with a quarterback and you know they don't always have to be world beater quarterbacks I wouldn't say Mitchell Trubisky is amazing at quarterbacking but he has a coach that understands how to maximize his skill set he puts him in an offense where he can actually showcase the skills of the talent that he has as a head coach and then everything else falls in place around that and that's how you build a modern NFL team nowadays and the Niners whether it was luck or what have that similar structure and they are set for years to come because of the decision to hire, to hire Kyle Shanahan and because of the, the fact that they simply have Jimmy Garoppolo. Well, the funniest thing about everything that you just said, and when I say funny, I don't mean haha. I mean like ironically funny is that the 49ers organization was probably the first organization to figure this out. Right? Like, absolutely. what was it? 40 years ago, they hired, Bill Walsh and got Joe Montana. And it's like, I don't understand how every team in the league doesn't realize at this point in 2018, we're sitting here halfway through the 2018 season and like other teams don't understand this. And so the fact that the 49ers did it and they, you know, they did it uh, when Harbaugh was there as well. Um, in terms of getting him and then, you know, even Alex Smith, you know, I mean, for all his faults and thoughts and prayers to him today, uh, and then Colin Kaepernick, like, that's what you do. You get your head coach, your offensive minded head coach, you pair him with a quarterback. And I, the, the other thing I'll say is that like, I've done research on like, what are the most stable things, um, in terms of coaching ten or in, in terms of like, NFL win percentage, you know, from a Pythagorean percentage, which is based on point differential. And like what I found is that basically the head coach is the most important thing. And then once you get past the head coach, if you want to think about or if you want to try to find, you know, more explanation of wins and losses, you go head coach QB pair. And then if you want to go a little bit further, you go to head coach QB GM triad. Right. And like I think again, going back to what we're thankful for, like, I'm just happy that even though, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo is hurt, unfortunately, like I I'm thankful for the fact that the 49ers right now, uh, have in place pretty much those, those three positions locked down and they're obviously successful at their job or they have been over the past couple of years. Yeah, and you know, I look at a team like the New Orleans Saints, and the New Orleans Saints right now are one of the two 
best teams in the NFC and one of the four best teams in football. I mean, the drubbing that they laid to the former NFL champion Eagles. I mean, it was the game was over by the end of the first quarter. It was ridiculous. And, and you think about that quarterback and head coach pairing. They have one Super Bowl, 2009, but they you always you never have to worry about that team because you know that Drew Brees is always going to continue to be Drew Brees and that Sean Payton is going to continue to maximize the talent of that offense because of what he can do. The, being a good head coach and having a good quarterback doesn't mean that you are always going to win the Super Bowls and, and win, you know, three in a row or whatever the case may be, or even get to three NFC championship games like the Niners were able to do under Jim Harbaugh. I think all it means is that in any given year, you have a shot. And if things break your way, if you are able to kind of stave off the injury bug and if you are able to uh, have maybe some schedule luck uh, and maybe some turnover luck, some fumble luck, if those things happen to you, then that's what ends up propelling you into the stratosphere of winning a Super Bowl. And the more... The, the the more frequently you have those things in place and the longer you have those things in place, the better off you'll be. Uh, and that's why, you know, I'm not too worried that Kyle Shanahan's not having a good year this year because I think at his core, he is a good coach and he's making good decisions. And over a 10-year period, which I hope he's here for at least 10 years, that is going to result in more wins and more opportunities at the Lombardi than otherwise. I think if I can paraphrase what you just said, which I agree with 100%. Uh, is that if you were to ask Saints fans heading into the 2006 season, we're going to give you one Super Bowl win in the next, what is it, 2018 now? So the next 13 years, right? But you'll be a perennial, you know, barring some weird circumstances or injuries or, like you said, schedule or or like last year losing a freaking <laughs> playoff game in the last play, right? Like, like if you were to talk, if you were to tell a, a Saints fan in 2006 before the season that I'm going to give you that, like the, the universe is going to give you one Super Bowl and just like 12 years of always a contender basically for the playoffs, they would take it. You know, if you would have told me in 2010 that the Niners were going to get a head coach and a quarterback pair, right, and they were not going to win a Super Bowl, but like they were going to go to what was it, three straight NFC Championship games? Yep, which is fucking unheard of, and and go to a Super Bowl and basically be three fade passes away from a Super Bowl championship, right? Like I would have been elated. And then you know just to go to the current day or the current moment, I should say, like if you were to tell Packers fans in two thousand and eight, right? Yeah, you're going to get a world championship and you're going to be a competitor, but then your coach may, you know, 15 years from now, stop understanding how to, you know, uh, call games in the, in the NFL, whatever, uh, however you feel about that. Like even Packers fans who right now are shitting all over Mike McCarthy and want his head. Like if you would have told them that at the time before they hired him, or that was what 2006 actually? Yeah, because it was the year after. It was, it was the year after Mike uh, Nolan yeah. hired him as offensive coordinator, right? Yeah. Yep. But like, so yeah, 2006 Packers who hadn't won anything since what 1996, uh, basically, or hadn't won a Super Bowl since 1996. It's like if you would have told them. So my point here, because I'm being long winded, is that like 
you got to look at how things were uh, prior to the coach coming in. And if you would have told me in 2015, at the end of 2015, or I'm sorry, the end of 2016, uh, that the Niners were going to hire a coach, because remember that head coaching search was, there were a lot of shit ass uh, oh, people it was bad. out there. It was real bad. <laughs> It was it was not a, a murderer's row of coaching candidates, and they chose the right one. And if you would have told me uh, heading into that offseason that the Niners going to make the right head coach hire, make the right GM hire, Complete even game. though that was out of the box, right? Yeah. Like, get the quarterback. If you would have told me that, and like, I would have been ecstatic regardless of the results. So that's my take on this whole thing. Now, there, you got into a discussion on Twitter uh, with Josh Hermsmeyer, I think, if I'm remembering his last name correctly. But he does a lot of data analysis for 538, and um, he does some fantasy modeling like Air Yards, which actually I've used to great success a couple of times. Uh, better than Ricky Seals-Jones is what I'm trying to tell you, Danny. Um, but <laughs> Actually, Ricky Seals-Jones, per the Air Yards model, is a beast yeah. because he gets he has like a massive – like basically it's a Larry Fitzgerald yeah. and, and Ricky Seals-Jones. Well, I started Larry Fitzgerald and he caught two passes for 20 yards and two touchdowns. So well, that, I don't know what to tell you. I guess I'm just the worst. I'm the drizzling shits basically. Yeah, no like don't listen to me ever. But, but you, you got into a really interesting discussion about – um, the the late game decision making because I think if the, if there are people who are listening to this show who are a little skeptical about Shanahan and and maybe they're in the Shanahan hot seat camp, they would say that it, it's late game decision making that Shanahan has uh, you know a problem with. And we've talked I talked about it a little bit with George uh, from from Pro Football Focus, but you, you had a really interesting tweet that I thought was would really summarize all of it, and it, it was about proximal and distal causes. And I one had no idea what the hell those things were. Um, but two, <laughs> thought it was a really good way of, of summarizing uh, kind of how sometimes we maybe inappropriately distill games to a single decision point when mm-hmm. in reality it's just a conglomerate of decisions that you mash together to end up with the outcome of a game. So, so what the hell is a proximal, uh, what, what are proximal and distal um, kind of causes? We all as humans know that there's a cause and an effect. The question is, what is the proximal cause to what happens? And what is more of a distal cause? So, like, what actually caused the loss versus what are things that happened, you know, let's say midway through the third quarter that contributed to the loss but was not a proximal cause to the loss? So, like, for me, and I know I know a lot of people hate me for this on Twitter, uh, but I bitch about the referees a lot. And the reason why I bitch about the referees a lot uh, at the end of games, I don't do it like in the first quarter. It's because those kinds of calls that they were making on that last drive against the Giants, those were massively leveraged calls. Like the Giants win probability just exploded because of those calls and, and kind of more going to, you know, uh, you know what the better rivals podcast is all about. Like the, the things you guys were talking about, about that, about the defense that was getting played in the miscommunication uh, and all that kind of stuff uh within the defense that led to the winning touchdown, right? Like those kinds of things are even more proximal causes than the, than the bullshit refereeing that I was, that I saw, you know, as I was watching the game. So basically a proximal cause is just like, what is the closest thing that determined the outcome of the game? Uh, And then you work backwards from there and everything backwards from there is distal causes in terms of Kyle Shanahan. It's not proximal causes from him. It's more distal causes. 
it's uh so if it, pro- things just happen if right? approximate cause is like you said the thing that's closest to or immediately responsible for kind of causing the observed result then the distal cause is that higher level or the real reason that something occurred so if if we're talking about the giants then you know the, a couple approximate causes would be maybe the fourth down call or the penalty against um, Malcolm Smith, but ultimately the distal cause is the fact that Malcolm Smith is there in the first place and that the Niners misjudged his talent and paid him a bunch of money to not be very good. Uh, and ultimately the distal cause is that they're, they're a little deficient on the talent side on defense. Um, and, and for whatever reason, those miscommunications and those errors allow big plays to happen at a rate that, you know, you probably don't want for a defense. And so, I thought it was really interesting because, you know, when when you're talking about Kyle Shanahan and saying, oh, well, he didn't maximize expected points in that one, you know, kind of point. It's like, no, he probably didn't. It probably was the right call to go for it. But there's so much else that goes into that at any given moment. And and Shanahan's probably looking at Nick Mullins and he's looking at C.J. Beathard and he's like, man, I know it probably is smart to to do it, but I maybe just don't trust in the fact that these quarterbacks can get it done. And so I'm going to try and play it safe here. And I would imagine that he gets more aggressive when his talent gets better, which is exactly what was the case when he was in Atlanta, because he was way more aggressive in Atlanta than he was uh, uh, here at the Niners. So I think that, that you know, the, the distal cause is ultimately that he's under talented and he probably knows it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that then feeds into proximate causes, which is him not going for uh, instances in fourth down where he probably should because the math says that he should. Right. OK, so. Uh, you you made a good clarification uh, uh, of what I was trying to say. Uh, like when I when when I was answering the question initially, I'm talking more about like in game things. So like you're literally talking about what happens last, because that's how cause and effect works, right? In the real world, like something that's an effect has a proximal cause and a, and a, you know and, and then the cause before that and the thing that causes that and the thing that causes that right so like i was talking more in game but in terms of like just uh 30,000 feet when you're when you're thinking about like predicting what wins in the NFL or like if you're trying to predict wins for the following season or things like you know more of the statistical kind of stuff that people like me do like yes you're what you just said is is correct like it's it's the 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 strategic stuff is way more important than the in-game stuff at least that's how i think about it like if you were to tell me basically that i could if i was like you know omniscient owner of an nfl team and you were you were to tell me or you know you're my assistant gm or my gm or whatever and you told me oh yeah this guy here he has a shit scheme right like he's running offense from like you know 1984 but God damn it, he knows how to maximize those fourth down, you know, plays and 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 he knows how to use his timeouts perfectly, right? I would not hire that guy over the guy who is massively, you know, like a John McVay type, who's just literally he's playing the same formation every time and fooling you on all plays. Right. Like it's just it's great. Or somebody like Kyle Shanahan, who, you know, half the time his receivers have like six yards of separation so because like of Doug, the scheme. Doug Marone with perfect math is right. still <laughs> not better than, than Sean McVay. Right. Mike, Mike, 
Pettin, Patin, right? Mike the, Pettin, the Browns yeah. former. Yeah, like like that guy with like perfect knowledge of the EPA charts in like late game situations and game theory in an in game situation. Like I would take Mike Shanahan, Kyle McVay, or not Mike, Kyle McVay. Uh, what's Jesus that would Christ be me. a hell of a head coach though. If you could, just Kyle McVay like would be an McVay incredible. I'm like uh, I just want to say to people who are listening that like I'm. Uh, I am the worst with names. Uh, so if, when Which I do that kind of thing. Which is fitting for the Better uh, Rivals podcast. You fit in just fine. Trust me. <laughs> and actually, after Kyle McVeigh, I was going to say John McVeigh. And then I realized, oh, no, that's my <laughs> Niner brain that's talking. <laughs> but anyway, so like, uh, so yeah, like I would take those kinds of guys way over um, Sean McDermott with perfect knowledge of the probabilities in the late game. Yeah. Right? That makes sense? Absolutely. So I think definitely Kyle Shanahan, we're thankful for that. We're thankful that the team has, whether it be luck or skill, you know, kind of found itself having the modern NFL structure that it needs to succeed with most of the right pieces. And then I think that takes me to, to the second thing that I'm thankful for. And that's the, the positive personnel decisions that we do have. I think getting value out of Richard Sherman has been a, a, a really, really positive result. That Massive. was something that was... I wasn't sure was going to hit. You know, who knew what Richard Sherman we were going to get? And while I don't think that he has played as well as some of the kind of snap by snap statistics have measured him out to be, because I think there are other things at play there. I do think he's played back to the level that he was playing before he ruptured his Achilles, which is that you know kind of in the high level of above average play, um, and that is easily the best corner that we've got. And, and I think that his his impact off the field also cannot really be measured via statistics. And so I think by and large, I, I think it's a fantastic signing. I'm glad the team did it and took that risk. I think you look at players like George Kittle, who is having an all-pro season. Then you look at Matt Breida, who's an undrafted free agent. And, and I think that the, the, the single probably stealthiest signing that not a lot of people have talked about that I think has really changed this team, and specifically the offensive line, is the signing of Mike Person. We signed him on a one-year deal as really depth and competition at the center position. Because remember, the team signed Jonathan Cooper and uh, former first-round pick who is not playing. We're just just not going to say his name out loud because why bother? Uh, but but <laughs> Person's basically made everyone at that right guard spot irrelevant, and, and he's played really, really well. I mean, you look at his pro football focus grade, and he is one of the top non-tackles on the team. Basically, he's the highest graded interior lineman for the 49ers. You've got Staley and McGlinchey who are up there because they're beasts. And if you're going to have positively graded offensive linemen, you want them to be at tackle. That is the most valuable position on the offensive line. But then you move inside. It's been a while since the Niners have had good guard play. And the Niners are getting good guard play from Mike Person. And that's just something that, that I don't think anyone really expected. Uh, and so I, I'm really, really thankful that the Niners have made some really positive, really, really good, smart decisions in the personnel department because it really is a crapshoot. Sometimes you're going to hit them. Sometimes you're not. And, and the more that you can hit, the better you can build that bottom of, of the roster and build those players up and have them grow with the team. I think the better off you'll be. I think uh, I have two questions for you uh, based on that. Number one, what, this one's kind of nerdy. Um, you mentioned the fact that you probably don't think Richard Sherman is playing as well as his like ungodly stats are showing. Uh, I mean, just in your opinion, like how much of it is, or how much? Let me just a general question rather than making specific about Sherman. 
when you see a quarter, uh, when you see a cornerback with really great stats like that, like what makes you, what are the kind of indicators that make you say, oh, well, he's probably not playing as good as those stats versus he is playing that good. They're just not throwing it at him. So I think the first thing you look to is you look at plays where he is targeted and you look at what was the cause of the incompletion. The 49ers have been really, really lucky at having incomplete passes due to drop balls or through due to just bad quarterback throws. I look mm-hmm. at the, the first Arizona game in week five specifically. I thought that was not Richard Sherman's best game on the year. And there were times where he was just flat out beat. But, it, you know, Josh Rosen just overthrew the ball and missed the receiver. Mm-hmm. Richard Sherman still got beat on that play. That's still not a positive rep for Richard Sherman, but the pass wasn't completed. There was another ball, though. Uh, what was it, like two weeks ago? I can't remember the exact play where he was beat badly, and he somehow made up yeah, the he recovered. distance exactly. and put the arm in there. Yep. Yeah, so th- those are the things where it's like that's that's a little bit of up and down, right? It's like that's the good Richard Sherman, but that doesn't mean that Richard Sherman has been perfect. And I think with right. really, really good players, I think the misconception that most people have is that really good players never, ever fail. And that every single rep, <laughs> they're just destroying everyone. And that's not true. There are reps where elite players fail. Even Aaron Donald, at the rate at which he defeats blocks, still gets blocked sometimes. He still doesn't generate pressure. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that's what people misunderstand is that you, a, a player can still be good and play well. And Richard Sherman is playing well. And, and still get beat. The difference is that as you get down the totem pole in, in player skill, they get beat more and more frequently, and the positive plays are less and less prevalent. And with Richard Sherman, I think, you know, you look at the outcome of a play, and the play is an incomplete pass, and you think, oh, Richard Sherman must have done a good job. But when you go one level further, you're like, nah, Richard Sherman got beat, but it was a bad throw, or the wide receiver dropped it. Um, and I think he's had more of those that, that show up on the stat sheet as a positive play. And so when you mm-hmm. look at the, the outcome stats, it looks a lot better than his actual like film looks. All that, all, even with all those things you know, being considered, he's still playing well, and he's still the single best corner on the team, which is why you see smart offensive coordinators line up their wide receivers on the other side of the field because right. the 49ers don't switch their corners. Sherman always plays on the left side, and Akello or whomever the Niners are trotting out is always playing on the right side. So, like, why bother throwing into the strength of the defense when you just go to the other side? Right. Okay, so before my second question, um, putting my sports psychology hat back on. And uh, I actually think that what you just talked about in terms of failing, like great players failing, I think that that is one of the most important traits of any player in any sport. Because like you say, even the most talented player, and I mean, you can pick the best player at any position in the NFL. They fail. I mean, look at like, I mean, obviously we're, it's a football podcast, but look at baseball, right? Like, I mean, that's the easy example. It's like they fail 70% of the time. Like the, the ones that become great are the ones that don't look at that failure or don't internalize that failure. They say to themselves, I'm not shit for a cornerback, for example. It's just, you know, like the cliche goes, like they have the shortest memories, right? The cornerbacks have the shortest memories. and th- Those are the players that if I were somebody who was a GM or if I was in a front office, like, 
and I was, you know, evaluating draft picks or stuff like that. Like that would be what, what one of the things I would look for immediately because I don't give a shit how much talent you have. If you b- give up five, six, you know, uh, long passes as a cornerback, you're going to have a tendency to get demoralized. And it's up to you and your mental toughness to say, no, I'm not going to get beat again. Or maybe I will get beat again, but you know what? I'm going to figure out why I just got beat. I'm going to spend, you know, hours, you know, with the film and hours outside of the practice field, figuring out why this guy beat me because Richard Sherman has gotten beat. But he, to me is, I mean, if you're going to talk about a cornerback that like has a psychological profile of somebody that I would have on my team a hundred times out of a hundred, that's it. He doesn't give a shit. He got beat. He either makes it up and throws his arm in there or he got beat and then he figures it out and then he's, you know, go on to the next week. So and I think one step further with with Richard Sherman, I think he is so competitive that those those instances where he does get beat eat at him like he forgets them. Sure. But he hates being beat. And and it's those things that make him want to say, like, no, that's not going to happen again because I'm better than that. And I think that that is a a bit of, you know, uh, something you can't really. Um, it doesn't always show up on, on a grease board or when you're outlining plays. It's like it's that drive and that competitiveness, which, you know, I mean, if, if there were a way to measure that and figure that out, I think businesses and HR departments would um, spend lots of money to do it. Yeah. And- competitiveness is what you're looking for. You don't want ever, you don't ever want somebody to get their ass kicked and say, yeah, OK, I'm all right. I'm all right with that. Right. Yeah. Or get beat on a game winning touchdown and say, yeah, you know whatever uh I'll, you know i'll figure it out no you want somebody to be pissed off which is why i mean going back to the beginning of this kind of diatribe i've been on it's like that's why like witherspoon although it, it shouldn't have been in public in front of the cameras like i'm happy to see that the niners in, have been demonstrative all year like i, I don't yeah. i think that that's that's it's it's much ado about nothing really it's yeah like, it's like not, i i want my game. guys to be pissed when they get beat I want my guys to be pissed when they lose. You know, I mean, this is going back to, you know, the uh, infamous Michael, uh, Michael Singletary. That's what I call him, by the way. Michael Singletary press conference, which, you know, I mean, he was all rah-rah and no scheme. So he doesn't count in this conversation outside of what I'm about to say. But it's just like, I agree with that part of his diatribe 100%. Like, you want people who just will get better. They need to get better. They want to get better. No matter how many times you get beat, they keep coming back and trying to get better. And that's all you look for. And if the guy gets frustrated, I mean, it's the same reason why back when Terrell Owens was on the team, he'd get frustrated all the time. It's well, the same reason why, you know, Randy Moss is a diva and all these other receivers are divas. No, they're not divas. They just know they're really fucking good. And they know that the offense will be better if you just give them the fucking ball. And like, uh, yes, you shouldn't do it in public, but... I would rather have those guys every day and three times on Sunday than somebody who just is complacent, who sits there and gets beat and doesn't care or whatever. So end of diatribe. Hashtag. All right. Well, last thing I think that I'm thankful for is that the Niners are currently sitting in the pole position for the first overall pick. Uh, because quite frankly, the this is not and this was not a team that was going to like everything had to go right for them to win more than six or seven games. And, and I think a lot of the, I understand a lot of the preseason hype and, and it made sense, you know, especially with the way that Jimmy Garoppolo ended last year. 
But I think even with a healthy Garoppolo over 16 games, the Niners were still going to have a really tough opening slate and they were still going to lose more games than they won early on. And so I think by this point in the year, even without, they probably they wouldn't have two wins, but they probably would be firmly out of the playoff race. And, and I think that then the team will be better served by having a higher draft pick in next year's draft. And if they can get, I think, Bosa, that's going to be just a complete and utter game changer because the team will be able to get value, contract value, I should say, out of a first-round pick, given the fact that they've already paid their quarterback tons of money. I think that kind of value is is really, really incredible when you can get a premier pass rusher on a rookie deal at one of the two most important positions in football. So I think that while, yes, it sucks and it's awful and, and you want to win every game, I think understanding where this team was and, and I think that John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan understand that this is going to be a, a multi-year kind of deal that having another high draft pick is infinitely more valuable than six or seven rando wins. And I think that's a much easier pill to swallow with Nick Mullins and CJ Beathard than it is with Jimmy Garoppolo. Do you think that they planned this with the pass rusher? Well, okay. So I was going to, do I think they planned ACL injuries? No, no. Okay. Let me rephrase the question. Do I think they planned um, or specifically didn't target edge rusher to tank? No, I think though they took a look at the landscape of edge rusher and they said, all right, I can either, if one becomes available that we think is worth it, let's go after him. They reportedly went hard after Khalil Mack, and that didn't work out because I think Mark Davis has a 49ers complex. But they, <laughs> but the edge rushing class in this year's draft, outside of one or two players, was not very good. So it's understandable that if they didn't think Harold Landry was worth it for whatever reason, then they weren't going to get it, and they didn't have a shot at, at, at Chubb. So then you think to yourself, okay, what edge rushers were available in free agency? Well, none really that they thought really fit the mold that could really do it because I think they would have needed to overpay. And I think this offseason, you're looking at paying a ton of money for a quarterback. You don't want to put another huge free agent contract into the edge rushing position because I think that's when you start to tilt your, your salary cap in, in an unhealthy way. You want the reason that the best way to build a team in, in the modern NFL is to get a good rookie quarterback on that rookie deal is so that you can spend money everywhere else and make your team competitive because you have a valuable asset in a cheap quarterback that's good. I think the Niners never got that part because they never drafted a quarterback that, you know, on that rookie wage that they wanted to keep because he wasn't a political football, so to speak. So instead, they, well, even then, he was on a second contract, so it didn't matter. Colin Kaepernick. But but even then, <laughs> I think, okay, you're, you've paid for your quarterback. Where then can we get value? That's going to be with an edge rusher in the draft. And so they were probably targeting the draft. And when they looked at it and they said, you know, there's not really a whole lot of really good edge rushers here. Then they thought, okay, so 2019 is the target. And they're okay with being patient, just like they were patient for the quarterback. And they thought, if not Kirk Cousins and a draft pick or something else, they probably thought the same thing for edge rusher. And honestly, I, I can't really fault him for that because now they're in line to get an edge rusher uh, at a top 10 pick in the draft, at least maybe a top two or three pick. And that is going to be much more valuable for them than having paid, you know, X number of dollars for some middling pass rusher. Yeah. I mean, I was being kind of facetious with that question because they, <laughs> it's like the fact that they're number one right now is kind of crazy given the teams that they're competing with, right? Like the, 
I think they are a better team than probably the next five teams in the draft order below them, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's like I, I was being facetious. But um, one other thing about the waiting on the pass rusher, because you were, you were talking about patience, and while I agree with that, I would also wonder, and this is a, you know something that you know more about than I do, um, is like, is there an issue that Robert Sala's defense is more coverage-based than rush-based in general, such that they want to get better corners like they have with you know going out and getting Sherman, uh, drafting Witherspoon, um, uh, you know having that um, single high safety. I don't think that Robert Sala is thinking, oh, you know what, my my defense is not dependent on a pass rusher. I think any defensive coach knows that a, a good pass rush is going to help you, especially. No, I don't. I don't mean. I mean like. Well, yeah, but that, and I think that there are certain seen... defenses that are more about the pass rush than they are the coverage. I mean, obviously both are valuable, but some. Yeah, I think that with Robert Sala specifically, I think it's just a matter of him not necessarily running personnel and and kind of having to do with the pieces that he's got and because i do think that that he doesn't really have control at that level i think they probably said like hey if you could go after a couple of guys who would you go after and unfortunately he picked malcolm smith and you know that's (laughs) turned out the way that it's turned out but Uh but i do think that the his defense once he gets up i mean you you've seen with khalil Mack what a good edge rusher can do to a defense it can completely transform it and, and I think that if we and were to- if I could, I could just interrupt Oscar, I'm sorry, but like Khalil Mack goes to probably one of the better defensive coordinators, former Niner, right? In terms of utilizing the pass rush, right? Yeah, and I think that goes back to just the the coordinator's philosophy. I think every coordinator is going to build their defense around something. Big Fangio is a defensive front guy. He cares more right. about the linebackers, but that's just because of the way that he views the game. I think, and that has well, a lot that's, to yeah, do that's with. Yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm kind of getting towards. Is just like certain coordinators, you know, prefer. You know, th- yeah, but I don't basically, think like, you're going to do. stop the pass offense, right? You're defending a pass offense. Like, how do you want to do it primarily? Do you want to do it more from a pass rushing perspective, or you do want to do it more from a coverage scheming perspective? And I think, you know, to me, I don't know. I don't know the, the answer to that uh, in terms of Salah. I think if he if he could get a premier pass rusher, he obviously would. You know, like you're saying, like every coach would want that. But I just I wonder if certain coaches are more about one than the other. And like you're saying, Fangio is more about the pass rush. Now, I think that so one thing that I think that's interesting is if you think of the way that a defense is constructed, right? Like I was just watching um, a match quarters DVD from the Alabama defensive backs coach and everything that they do is meant to basically put their defenders in a good place to stop the pass. Now, mm-hmm. they still align their front and their back end coverages so that your nickel defender can be a pass first player, for example. And so mm-hmm. they will two gap on the nickel side so that the nickel defender doesn't have to come in and actually take a gap. And, and so I think that even if you structure your defense with the defensive backs in mind, or if you structure your defense with your front in mind, you're eventually going to converge in the same area, which is a marriage of front and coverage combined that get you the desired effect. Whether you approach it from front to coverage or coverage to front, you get to mm-hmm. the same place, which is the best defenses are ones where you can rush the quarterback with four and drop as many players as you can. And if you have an elite pass rusher like Khalil Mack who can just disrupt whatever he wants on the front, then right. you're going to be better off. And that's what the Niners had with Fangio with Alden Smith. And I mean, Fangio's defense in Chicago was not great two years ago. 
Uh, no, that's, that's why I bring it up have, because like all players. of a sudden he got Khalil Mack and this is like, you know. Yeah, and I think that has less to do with Fangio and more to do with talent. And and right. that's why I think that on defense, talent reigns supreme. And once you have talent, then of course your scheme is going to look great because you've got talented players because defense is all about playing quickly uh, and playing and reacting to what's in front of you because the offense knows what they're doing. The defense is really reacting to what the offense is doing. And so if you can do that quickly, I think you're in a better place than, than kind of scheming or those other things. And that's not to say the scheme is not important. It is. But I do think that it is not as important as athleticism and speed to the ball as it is on offense. Sports psychologists will tell you that sports psychology and the mental state, the emotional state is not what you know, is not the big factor. What the big factor is, is talent. And then what separates players, you know, like you're saying is the mental thing. It's the drive. It's the learning. It's the knowing shit more than the other guy, right? Like that's basically it. It's, and that's why I've, you know, I've heard anecdotally from players in the past that like the thing that they care about from their head coaches are not that, you know, that they're this, that, and the other, what it is that they teach them something. They teach them a trick. They teach them th- something to look for, right? They teach them something that gets them a leg up, that fills up that last 10%, you know, because everybody in the NFL is a- an elite talent. And so you're just filling up that last 10%. And so those are the players you want for sure. All right, Danny. Well, I think that does it for this week's episode. Thanks for coming on, dude. And thanks for doing it on, uh, on Turkey Day week. Uh, oh yeah, a little, no, a I, enjoy spot. your trip to California. It was good uh, talking to you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course, dude. Uh, and uh, I'll make sure that uh, I always, uh, whenever I drink rosé, will think of you. Uh, and <laughs> almost, the rosé and gold. Uh, almost Italian hopefully, last night. Hopefully, um, hopefully during Color Rush Week, yeah, I'll go with the rosé. That's gold. exactly right. Just, <laughs> just all pink. Just put the Niners out in all pink. There you go. I'll do it. All right, dude. We'll have a good one. All right, you too. Hello, I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seems Smart. It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.